It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I wanna know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I wanna know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing frequencies open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and I actually saw Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra in 1983, but the acoustics were terrible. I'm joined on this episode by Alan Gratz, author of Samurai Shortstop, Prisoner B3087, and many other books for teens. His latest book, Project 1065, is out now and available in paperback and ebook form. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being here. Permission to come aboard. Granted. Uh, today we'll be talking about Darmok, the second episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's an episode that frequently features highly on fan lists of the quote-unquote best TNG episodes, but it's also an episode that's probably appeared on more than one worst of lists as well. And I think the answer to that lies with the fact that Darmok may be the quintessential Star Trek episode. I mean, it features weird-looking aliens, uh, spaceships shooting at each other, technobabble, a mysterious monster brought to life with TV budget effects, and <laughs> a central conflict that mirrors problems in our own society, yet it doesn't feature those elements in the way that we've come to expect from uh, escapist fiction, and that might be what some viewers reject, I think. Right. Uh, I think it's a, a, a safe to say that you're a fan of this episode, but can you elaborate on why you chose Darmok to discuss on the show today? Yeah, totally. I, I do love this episode. I, I'm, I'm definitely of the camp that it's among the best of the Star Trek episodes, both for TNG and, and all the series combined. I wouldn't say it is the best. Um, that's a whole other argument. Sure. But I definitely put it in, in my top list for, for TNG. Um, yeah, I, I feel like this is quintessentially Star Trek. Like I, feel like, like, I feel like this is an episode that is everything that Star Trek is supposed to be about. Um, I, you know, you know, it's it's right there in in the the credit scroll. You know, the the space, the final frontier, the voyage of the Starship Enterprise, its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, and like that that part of that that story. I th that's what Darmok is to me. You know, we're told in the episode that there's been first contact already. This isn't exactly a first contact episode, right. but. But we're so we're told that that the Federation has run into these guys. They haven't been able to communicate with them. But this is what it's all about, like like trying to forge some sort of connection to these people that they've run into. And I, to me, that's that's right there in in the words that have been repeated, you know, in in, in the original series and, and TNG and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, this is this is to me quintessentially Star Trek. Um, I, that's one of the major reasons that I asked to talk about this one. Um, I also think it's a writer's episode, uh, okay. and, and I am a writer, and, and so that appeals to me. I don't like stories about writing. Like I don't like I don't like when writers write about writing because I, I often feel like most viewers and most readers don't care about writing. <laughs> they want a good story, sure, and it's sure. only the writers who care about writing. But this is a this is a story about words. It's a story about stories. Yeah. Without being a story about writing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. and so 
<laughs> yeah, I, I totally love this idea. We, we, we'll, we'll talk about this as we get into the episode, I'm sure. But story has so much to do with the plot of this story. I, I agree. Um, and when your comment about um, writers uh, writing about writing, um, it's it's hard to it's similar to like i said i'm working giving it away we'll talk about it later but yeah yeah it, it's hard to communicate to somebody who is a reader and doesn't write um the sort of things that you go through when you write something so you can yeah. write a story about writing and it wouldn't necessarily connect with an audience i've always find that like hollywood when hollywood makes movies about making movies yeah. I, hate, I hate those movies like yeah. they're just never very rarely do they i think connect in the way that a movie should and yet still teach right. you something about uh, making movies um, writing about writing always feels very self-indulgent it's, yeah sure it's writing about what you the writer are concerned with every day of your life but that's not what real people who are reading your story are concerned about. Yeah, and they so didn't, they didn't sign yeah. up for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And so I, I feel like, you know, I guess there's a DS nine episode where Jake in the future is a writer or something. Is that, am I remembering, remembering that correctly? And, and I've, I've, he's like written one novel and, and I'm always, I get to that episode and I'm like, no, not this one. I don't want to watch that one again. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to write, I don't want to watch shows about writers, but this being about story is very different, and it connects with story in a very different way than just the crafting of story. It connects yeah. with it in the way that viewers and readers do, and that is how you experience a story. Right, exactly. Um, my personal opinion of the episode, I, I like it, but that opinion is kind of in constant flux. Um, I've always enjoyed it, but I think I alternate between marveling at the effectiveness of its central conceit, but also yep. kind of giggling along with everybody else at how silly it can seem. Oh, sometimes. right. Totally. I mean, it might be one of the best uh, Next Generation episodes, but it's probably the one I'd be the least likely to show a non-fan. Oh, like yeah, it's, yeah. It's too inside baseball. You need to be versed oh, I in get that. Yeah. And a lot of the vocabulary of the series and of uh, allegorical sci-fi in general. And maybe that's fitting, um, needing to know the vocabulary of TNG. But someone who doesn't know Riker, his leg raised, or Troy, <laughs> exactly. her, her accent inconsistent, uh, they're not going to be able to make heads or tails out of this. Yeah, yeah. The, the other reason that I really feel a, a connection to this episode and always have is Paul Winfield. And and again, the, we're, we're, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, about Paul Winfield and uh, I think he's an amazing actor. Uh, he, of course, was uh, Captain Terrell in, in Wrath of Khan, mm -hmm. uh, Chekhov's captain, uh, the guy who plays Dathan, the, 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 you know, the, the main Tamarian. Mm -hmm. And um, my connection to him is tenuous, but um, back when I began – back when I committed, committed to being a, a, a professional writer, when I uh -huh. put all the other jobs away and stayed home – I was a stay-at-home dad and an aspiring writer, and I was writing novels but hadn't sold anything. And one of the first gigs that I got was a, that was a paying writing gig was writing for a show called City Confidential that was on A&E. And okay. I don't know if you ever ran into the show. It used to be uh, like 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't turn on A&E and not see an episode of City Confidential. Like, <laughs> okay. It was like their law and order. It was what they ran over and over and over again sure. you know, into the ground. And the, the premise was it was a true crime show. And they would send a camera crew out to a city that had, where a crime had been committed and the court case had already been wrapped up, usually a really salacious one. The, the, the more salacious, the better. Right. And they would interview all the people from the mayor down to the hairdresser on the corner and, and say, like, what do you remember about the murder? How did it change the town? The whole premise was like this, the seedy underbelly of small town America. And the uh -huh. narrator was Paul Winfield. Okay. And okay. So back when I was starting to write, one of the first writing gigs I got was writing for this show. And they were they produced it in my hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee. And 
So I got a gig writing scripts for that. And I was really excited because Paul Winfield was the narrator. And I loved Paul Winfield from Darmok and from <laughs> Rathcon, right? So I'm like, I'm going to write words that Paul Winfield is going to read on television. <laughs> right. And um, he died before my first episode could be filmed. Okay. Uh, he died in 2004. Uh, and that is right right after I got my gig, but before I, my first script was recorded. Before, so. Okay. My my scripts were all recorded um, by uh, Keith David, another terrific sure, actor, yeah. with a great voice, right? Yeah. Uh, so you can you can he, he, neither Paul nor nor uh, nor Keith were ever seen on that show, but they're you know, they were the voiceover work, right? And so uh, I, I so I got to write for Keith David, and he's amazing too. But I had. I had really, really, really wanted to write for Paul Winfield, and so my very tenuous connection to this episode is that I almost got to write for Paul Winfield, and, and, <laughs> uh, and so I've always kind of daydreamed about what, what it would have been like for him to read the words that I wrote. So, sure. Um, but th that's kind of all the reasons that I chose Darmok to talk about. Sure. My connection to Paul Winfield is even, even more tenuous. I saw him play uh, Othello at the Guthrie Theater oh, in Minneapolis, nice, nice. Uh, and he was great in that, too. Uh, well, as we get started here, why don't you give me your backstory? How did you come to oh, Star sure. Trek? Yeah, so uh, I started I, – I, I'm not old enough to have seen the original Trek when it was on television. It was already in syndicated reruns uh, by the time I was watching television as a kid. Um, my first run-in with the original series was in reruns when I would visit my grandparents in Atlanta. For some reason, where I lived in Tennessee, it wasn't on any of our stations in rerun, or at least not at a time when I was watching television. Hmm. And uh, I saw it as a kid, my first experience, like watching it on a Atlanta television randomly, like twice or you know two or three times a year. Hmm. And I remember very distinctly drawing a picture of the Enterprise when I was really, really young, just like the saucer, the nacelles, you know, just getting the basic shape of it on there. And my dad seeing it. And my dad was like, where did you see that? Like, he knew exactly what it was. But he was like, where did you see that? Because we hadn't watched it at home. And I was like, there's this show on at Granny's. It's amazing. I love it. You know? <laughs> and um, I remember that very clearly being sort of one of my first experiences with, with Star Trek. And then uh, when I was five years old, Star Wars came out and pretty much blew everything else out of the water for me. So, like, Star Wars was my life for – for most of my childhood. And so I had watched, you know, as, as I got older, I watched all the, the original series. Um, I confess it's never been my favorite of the series. Uh, it's definitely not my least favorite of, of all the different series. But, but TNG is where I came back to Trek. And uh, TNG started, I guess, when I was, uh, I, I guess when I was maybe a junior in high school or close to, somewhere around there. Okay. And, and I guess by the fourth season, I was in college and I distinctly remember like being in the dorm and watching lots and lots of different people that I never expected to be Trek fans huddled around the television while Star Trek The Next Generation was on. Yeah. And um, and then I moved in with a couple of guys who were also Trek fans and, and it was like appointment watching, you know, back when, you know, before DVRs and that sort of thing. <laughs> right. Um, it was appointment television for us and uh, and I've been a a hardcore fan since you know Lucas abandoned me in my in in my late <laughs> <laughs> in college, um, and then and then screwed me over later on. We don't have to talk about that. Uh, right. But but Star Trek became really superseded Star Wars for me. But but mostly as a as a college kid and then an adult, um, I w and I was such a fan that I was I was of course I was studying creative writing in college, so I was writing Trek. Uh, I wrote two short stories that I submitted 
to the Strange New Worlds anthology. Sure. Um, neither of those ever got accepted, but that was some of my early fan fiction and attempts at, at trying to write for Trek. Uh, and then my 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 best story about this is that um, when I was, I guess, in grad school or at least out of college, pre-grad school, there was a little bit of a gap in there. I decided what I wanted to do with my creative writing degree and my love of Star Trek was to write Star Trek novels. Mm-hmm. So at the time, uh, you know, Pocket Books was doing all the TNG and DS9 stuff. Uh, DS9 was still on TV. Voyager was on TV. And I wrote up uh, the first 30 pages and an outline of of a, of a TNG novel I called The Horror. And it was basically Heart of Darkness. Okay. <laughs> War is Kurtz, who is sent into to this planet in the Delta Quadrant, uh, or no, the, sorry, the Gamma Quadrant, um, through the wormhole into the Gamma Quadrant to to retrieve this Vulcan science science officer who had been behind one of those like hollow screens observing a primitive civilization and right. had gone native. And <laughs> so okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, so you got to bear with yeah, bear with me on this. So. Uh, <laughs> There was some subplot on the on the ship about data and 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 Romulans, I think, or something. But but I I I, I, wrote, I wrote this up. I outlined it. Uh, I really liked it. But at the time, you could only sell something to Star Trek if you were agented, and I didn't have an agent. So my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, pretended to be my literary agent, and <laughs> we we submitted my Star Trek novel. On fake letterhead that said like <laughs> Wendy Winters literary agent, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, we sent it in and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything. And of course, because my my girlfriend's now now wife is not really a literary agent, she didn't call anybody or follow up or do anything. <laughs> right. So it just like disappeared. And and we thought, okay, well they just didn't like it and forget it. And I moved on and I was working on writing kids books, which is what I'm doing now. And we can talk about that a little bit later when I plug sure. stuff, but. Um, a year later, we get a letter back in the mail, <laughs> and um, they said, oh, we're so sorry, like your manuscript literally fell behind a desk, and we didn't see it for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like there's a lot of humor in this, and we like the story, but we can't do it because you have Worf visit DS9, and we don't cross over. We don't do crossover stuff. Okay. And, um, it was actually interesting to me listening to you interview, I guess it was maybe David Mack, who was talking about all the rules and, and things that yeah. they have for, for scripts. And I didn't have any of that. So right. I didn't know, I didn't know you weren't supposed to have the show, the characters from one show meet the other, you know, and this is pre Worf going to DS now. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, which they, you know, they stole my idea. No, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, uh, anyway, so, you know, that was my, my little adventure trying to get published by Star Trek by in the Trek novels. Then I went on to write a lot of kids books and then, Cut to like 2009. Is that when uh, the, the the Trek reboot uh, came out? I guess right, right. And um, I found out they were doing young adult Star Trek novels, and based on Starfleet, they're, they're called the Starfleet Academy series. Mm-hmm. They were based on the reboot characters, so Kirk and Spock and Uhura and, and Bones. But at Starfleet Academy in the Abrams verse, or I guess we're supposed to call it the Kelvin verse. The Kelvin timeline, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, and um, so I called up my agent. I now have an agent, like for legit reasons. You fired your wife. <laughs> it's not my wife. And, and uh, I call up my agent, and I'm like, Barry, dude, Star Trek, young adult, like this is my whole life, like wrapped into one thing. Uh, can can you get me a gig? And so he contacted him. He found out what I needed to do. 
uh, because these weren't done by so these were done by Simon Pulse, a young adult imprint, mm. and not the not the people who were doing the regular continuity expanded universe stuff for Star Trek. Right. So they really needed to know that I knew my Trek because weirdly the editors who were writing working on these books did not. Um, they didn't know anything about Trek. They had just gotten the license to 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 sell. Trek novels. Hmm. Um, and so the people that they hired to write for them had to really know their Trek. And so I, I wrote what I jokingly refer to as my Starfleet uh, Academy application essay, telling them all <laughs> my, my experience with Star Trek, watching all the shows, reading lots of novels. Uh, I, at, at that point, had been playing on a, an online Star Trek sim, text-only sim, for like 10 years. Uh, okay. Shout out to my Potemkin friends. And... Um, <laughs> So I wrote down all the reasons that I was the right guy for this job, and they said, great, you sound great, send us uh, some story ideas. I sent them two or three story ideas. They picked one. He said, now write an outline. I wrote an outline. They made me make a lot of changes to it um, in my book. Uh, so the, the Star Trek novel I have is called Starfleet Academy, The Assassination Game. And in mine, I had to invent a, an alien race called the Varkalak. They're, they're basically werewolf dudes. They're dog people. Hmm. And um, I had originally written that as the Klingons. Uh, and when I turned it in, they said, you can't use the Klingons. This was pre-Into Darkness, right. uh, post-Star Trek reboot. Right. And I said, well, why can't I use the Klingons? And they said, we can't tell you. We can tell you. <laughs> 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 and, and I was like, what do you mean you can't tell me? And, uh, of course, I later found out that was code for we may be using the Klingons, and if we tell you we're using the Klingons, you might go online and spoil stuff, and so we can't right. tell you we're using the Klingons, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I had to make a lot of changes. I, have, I originally had used um, Section 31, uh, which also showed up in Into Darkness. I mean, you know, basically they just threw in as much crap as they could into Into Darkness. Not right. a fan of Into Darkness. Yeah. Um, and uh, but uh, but so uh, basically from the start of this, though, I said this is their property. Uh, I'm going to do whatever they say I have to do because I love track and I want to write a Star Trek novel. So, um, you know, if I had gotten to choose what generation, what series, what movie cast I would write for, uh, the new reboot guys wouldn't be the top of the list. <laughs> but well, yeah, but, yeah. But you take what you get, and and I got a chance to write for Star Trek, and I and I really had fun doing that. So, long story short, too late. Uh, I got <laughs> my my writing career kind of came full circle in that moment, having started with submitting this <laughs> Star Trek novel <laughs> through my wife, and you know, illegitimately, and then finally getting a real gig writing for Star Trek many many years later. Yeah, what would you think of Beyond? Uh, I liked Beyond. I thought it was fun, but forgettable. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's certainly better than Into Darkness. Into Darkness is just a hot mess. Um, yeah. But of the three, I still like the original reboot movie. And there's there's problems with it and holes. I'm not saying it's the greatest piece of Star Trek ever. Um, but uh, I don't know. You know, anytime you got like Kirk riding around on a motorcycle at the end, I just I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that, that just it just didn't work well for me. There, yeah. there were really parts of it, but but there's a lot of it that I'm just like, guys, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I found that it was like probably the first one that maybe I just had given up by this point. Oh, but yeah, I could yeah. actually kind of relax and enjoy it. Um, right. I think I just probably had my arms folded and, you know, a big pout on my face throughout the first two. <laughs> and this one I just went, all right, fine, just do whatever. And I actually kind of found it to be, you know, like you said, fun but forgettable. And right. I didn't... At least they're running kind of a mission in this one, you know. Right. And, and right. it just they're feels actually, like yeah. – and, and I, I did like at the beginning – 
you know, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I've seen it once. Um, you know, the at the beginning, Kirk even says like, "What happened to us just doing like missions?" Right. And, and it and it's almost like the writer. It's almost like they're, they're saying like, "What happened to just episodes of Star Trek?" And I was like, "Yes." What did happen to episodes of Star Trek? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, where is that? Bring it back, please, because that's that's Trek to me. You know that yeah. um, that's what I want. Um, I still don't think any of the the newer movies are worse than Insurrection, but I have uh, real issues with that. Well, maybe Into Darkness is worse, but they're they're right up there. <laughs> we will, yeah. Um, so that's kind of full circle. All my Trek stuff rolled into one. Sure. And speaking of Heart of Darkness, of course, Beyond yeah. has a has an element of that as well, yeah. with a character sort of going going native. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this episode sure. uh, that we got together today to talk about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sorry for called uh, Darmok, of course, uh, the second episode of the fifth season. Uh, it first aired on September thirtieth, nineteen ninety one, and the star date given in the episode is four five zero four seven point two. The story is by Philip Lezebnik and Joe Manoski, and the yeah. teleplay is by Manoski, and of course, Manoski is a longtime writer and producer yeah. for the series. Uh, he's written on DS9, Voyager, Next Gen, and he will be writing for Discovery, the upcoming yeah, show. Yeah, that's what I read, yeah. yeah. Which I'm excited to hear. I know that – I don't think that you can blame a lot of Voyager's problems on him necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I'm glad that he – he's kind of known as like a high-concept script guy, I think. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it really pays off in the case of Darmok, and sometimes we get masks out of it. Yeah, I, I actually wrote down when – I, when I saw who wrote it, I went back to look at his at his body of work, and I was like, oh, he wrote masks. So, yeah. like, like <laughs> yeah, that, that was one that immediately jumped out at me. Like, I mean, he didn't write Threshold for Voyager, so, I mean, we're, we're okay there. But, right, right. <laughs> uh, but masks for TNG is pretty bad. And like you say, it, it's high concept, and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, and he's certainly still kind of uh... – kind of farming the same area in terms of um, mythological uh, yeah. personages and stuff like that. He's also the writer who inserts uh, the number 47 into a lot of his scripts. Oh, I didn't realize uh, that. Yeah, a practice that was carried on by Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore and other Trek writers, too. Yeah. Do we get a 47 in Darmok? I don't remember. We do. Um, there, I think when uh, Troy and Data are going on Wikipedia to yeah, get all the references, yeah. uh, they say that there's like oh. 47 instances of something. Good, right. Yes, good. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And of course... It was directed by uh, Winrich Kolb, who directed many episodes in all four of the modern Trek series. Yeah. Uh, your assignment, if you can, is to give a – let's bump it up to 50-word synopsis of Darmok. Oh, listen. From listening to your previous episodes, I heard that you like 25, and I also heard a lot of people fail at that miserably. Oh, man. A lot of people so, don't even – I don't people people know that they're even trying to do something, but yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually have a 25-word exact oh, line for you. Perfect. Bring so it on. Here we go. Uh, an alien captain whose race speaks in metaphor kidnaps Picard in the hopes that fighting a common enemy will force them to understand each other. 25 Ex words, right? There. Expertly done. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> I have the 71 word version that was my first attempt at 25. But, <laughs> Break it down. But I edited Editing. it down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as you mentioned before, uh, Captain Dathan uh, of the Children yeah. of Tama is played by Paul Winfield. Yeah. Uh, and I think that he is absolutely the key to this working. Totally. Um, he, he doesn't, what I love about his portrayals, he doesn't even try to make. Um, the aliens overtly strange. Uh, he just lets the dialogue and, and the great uh, makeup uh, do the work for him. And he turns in like this earnest and, and deep performance, which is just Winfield all the way. Yeah, you, he just you've got to own it. I mean, you, you just have as an actor and you get this nonsensical script. I mean, think about I would I wish he were still alive because I would love to go to a con 
and like ask him questions about how he prepared for this. Because think, imagine you're an actor and you get a script and every single line of dialogue you have is techno babble. I mean, it's, uh -huh. it's like it's like it's like if if Kirk, I'm sorry, it's it's like if Data or or Jordy had all techno babble to speak for an entire episode, just right. total nonsense, you know. And and so it's it's not techno babble, but it, it might as well be, you know. It, it's it, it's just nonsense, but he finds a way of making it sound like it's not. He emotes. He mm -hmm. he breaks it up. I love when he like when he's cutting off his first officer at one point. Um, you know what? What's the line? It's the it's the, the river, river in winter. Yeah, the river in winter, and and um, he um, he he breaks it up in this in this great way. Um, you know, the river to mark in winter. You know, and right. and it's like the way we would say shut up. Right, you know? right. <laughs> and, and and I think that he he must have really. Uh, you know, I I have never seen a, an actual script of this. I haven't seen the physical script for this. And I don't know. They had to have told him what he was saying, like what those things meant. I don't know. I've never seen a, a script to know if that's in there. That's a good. Uh, that's a good question. I, I know that the director had said that um, it was a struggle for him to direct the episode because yeah. because the, you know nobody knew what anybody was saying, and it, he compared it to sh trying to shoot a, a Russian movie without knowing Russian. Mm. Or the times when I've read about an actor or an actress who speaks a whole different language, and then they're hired to do a film, but they only repeat their lines phonetically. Right, right. You know, like I've never understood how an actor can do that and not not un they might understand what the meaning of the line is, but not the actual meaning of those individual words. Yeah. And um, so I, I think he gives a, a a command performance here, and I think that having Winfield and and Stewart share so many just so much time on screen, you've got two amazing actors working together and and winfield really you're right he makes this episode totally the way that yeah. he he just makes you believe that he's speaking some other language that he knows what he's talking about he's very demonstrative like when he when they're down on the planet and and he holds up those two daggers you know like right after they beam down before the even before the the credits roll like he holds these two daggers up in his hands but the, even the way he does it is just like here we are i mean it's yeah I don't, I don't. It's very hard to explain unless you've like seen the episode and recently, and you can see it in your head. But he he commands the anytime he's on the screen, he commands it, and I yeah. think it's amazing. He's almost too good because yeah. there's there's a the first part of the story. Um, th there's nothing worse than watching your uh, heroes um, be idiots, and like. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, a script doesn't work like when that happens. And, and he is so demonstrative, like you said, that the story requires Picard to to not understand him. Yeah. But it's so clear that Winfield doesn't want to fight with these knives. Right. Like he's reaching right. out to him. But yet Picard has to be like, no, no, I won't fight you. And it's like, well, come on. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, there's there's no attempt at fighting here yet. And and I also think that, it, you know, it, it right before again, before the before the, the credits roll, um, Picard tries to talk on the, the, the view screen to, to Dathan and right. um, Picard gets up and in response to, you know, there's that great moment where, where Dathan's giving him this long, long rigmarole of, of all the different things. And it's totally in, incomprehensible. And Picard and, and Riker share this look like what, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but then Picard stands up and has to, he gives like the wordiest, <laughs> like, like professorial, like, yeah. I hope that we can come to some kind of communication between our species. Do you th find that agreeable? I'm like, dude, yeah. <laughs> like, 
so let's try a little bit more simple message, you know, like so sometimes right. his the writing for, for Picard, at least at the beginning, like you said, comes off as really dense because we have to go through the is it a threat? How come we can't, can't communicate? You know, when we know we got to move on. Uh, just a few more facts about the episode. Uh, this is the debut of Picard's uh, captain's jacket. Uh, oh, yeah. Their shoulders. Yeah. Which was repe- uh, reportedly designed by series costume designer Robert Blackman at the request of Patrick Stewart huh. to make him stand out as a captain. Well, it worked. I, and I really like the jacket. Do you not? Uh, no, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, and I think that the only thing that I get sort of uh, sort of have uh, regrets about is just um, the way that the costumes tend to cycle so much. I mean, I know okay. even our American military um, updates their uniforms, but it usually takes a long time. And depending on what movie you're watching or, or what season it is, it seems like they change five times in a week. Oh, sure. And nobody goes through more costume changes, it seems, than Troy. Uh, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and in this episode, she's wearing that awful um, that awful jumpsuit, that that full body jumpsuit. Um, but but you know, and even by next season, I think she's wearing the dress or at least a uniform. Uh, yeah, I, I did like when I think when Jellico comes on the ship in chain oh, of command, he tells her, he tells her like, yeah, true. right, yeah, uh, and, and get rid of the damn fish. Um, <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great stuff. Um, yeah, no, I, I had a note here about costuming and and also uh, just a, a laughable thing about Dathan. I mean, his uniform is pretty awful. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> the, I do like the way he looks as in terms of the, the prosthetics, but his his outfit is really bedazzled and really some weird color choices of that. Uh, yeah. So good, a good costume for Picard in this one. Not so great for Dathan. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, this episode also marks the first appearance of Ashley Judd as Ensign Robin yeah. Leffler, nice uh, in plot. what is her first uh, on-screen role. I think it was. Uh, Star Trek I think Nation, I think I you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I'll forgive her even for being a Kentucky basketball fan. Uh, oh no! Yeah, she's a super but, fan. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess she shows up uh, maybe just once more, or is it more? I believe than... in the game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then this is real inside baseball, but I think at some point on a talk show she had said that it was planned for her to return as uh, Wesley's wife in Star Trek Nemesis, but oh, I don't think ooh, that came about. Nice. I did read that. So is Nemesis the one with the wedding? Steve? Yes. Yeah. Troy, so, yeah. Because yeah, I read, a, I read, remember reading something that Will Wheaton had written about being invited back and filming that and how, how cool that felt. And then they cut his whole scene out. They cut, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that would have been, if you end up with, if you end up with Ashley Judd, that's a pretty good future. Yeah, not, not so bad. I would say. Um, I, I should mention, because uh, we're nerds and we like this kind of stuff, uh, there was a production goof in the originally aired episode uh, when the Enterprise fires on the Temerian vessel. The oh, phaser yeah. beam comes out of the torpedo tube. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it was fixed uh, on the Blu-ray. And indeed, when I watched this on Netflix, um, it, it wasn't there. You know, the phasers come from yeah. the forward phaser yeah, array. Yeah, in the, in this, when I rewatched it, um, I, re- I watched it on, the, uh, on my DVDs and I watched it on Netflix as well. Uh, I, I can't remember if it's still – if it's wrong on the DVD set, that's not hmm. – I have to, okay. to watch that and look at anyway. But yeah, I read I read that too uh, that, that that was a mistake, uh, a rare one. Usually they were a little bit better about that by this time. Yeah, just knowing the the design uh, team and everything, they're just thinking about this every day, and, and yeah. just yeah. suddenly somebody goes, "Oh no, uh, there you go. That's that like that. Is that it?" Or yeah, <laughs> but weird. You know, but but I I know for for a fact I can I can read a a, a manuscript. 15 times and missed the most glaring error. And so you've got to imagine <laughs> these guys are making one episode a week. They're cranking these out. Sure. And so at some point they got to make a mistake like that. And working on, you know, multiple episodes at a time. Yeah, exactly. Too. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room or the elephant yeah. unnoticed in the room, the <laughs> Temerian language. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's a tongue that's based in the words of Council Troy in the episode, completely on metaphor, using historical or mythopoetic figures and events to communicate. But it's probably more accurate to say, and I think you were touching on this before, that it's, I think it's really based on allegory. I, I, would, uh, I, I would totally agree with that. I think it's yeah. better, a better way of describing it is allegory. Yeah. Um, Comparing uh, you know, current events to past scenarios that yeah. they share resonance with. But my question is, I think the big question is, how do these people get anything done? Right. Like if, no. if you say Marab, his sails unfurled, how does the helmsman know how fast to go? Yeah. What, what direction do we go? What speed do right. we go? Yeah, exactly. Right. No, it, it, it totally falls apart upon inspection. And this is one of those where you just have to maintain this, this suspension of disbelief. Now, there are some, some uh, fan explanations of this. And, and when we talk about some headcanon stuff and, and some, some, uh, some uh, some theories we can get into that, uh, sure. but but on the surface, just taking it at at surface value for what we really can see in the episode, it really does beg the question: How do these guys get anything done? I mean, yeah. how do you say like we need that to be ten centimeters long? You know, like we sure. are. To, to be fair, we are told that the the signal that they're sending out is a mathematical progression. The the, right. the, the thing that come the, the, for them for the Federation to come and 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 talk with them so they have math but but yeah if everything is allegory how is there anything how where's the specificity in their life that you would need for space travel um so they seem to under they they seem to understand the idea of mathematics being a universal language at least something that will get somebody to come talk to them again yeah no this is the biggest problem with the episode i mean for all of its charms and all and, and all the terrific parts of the communication element of it this is the part that really falls apart uh, upon inspection. Um, yeah. Well, I was, I was cruising around the Internet. Uh, another thing you'd have to speculate would be impossible in their society. And I saw that there there's a follow-up short story in a Trek anthology oh. called Friends with the Sparrows. Oh. And it establishes that the Temerians do have a secondary language that's musical in form. Oh, and yeah. that deals with mathematical and technical terms, um, much like our Arabic numerals could be considered okay. a, a second language. Well, but and still, we, how, do see, uh, we do see Dathan's journal, and that becomes yeah, a yes, plot yes, element. Yes. And and so we know they have a written language, and we can't we don't understand what that says. Um, but it but so there, there's got to be more to to this. My the the most interesting thing about about this to me and talking about allegory versus metaphor. Okay, so so if it's metaphor, so metaphor is a is like we said not the best way of describing this because a metaphor is. Like something that stands for something else, but you get you get the feeling that with the children of Tama of Tama that the that these are not these don't stand for something else. They are they mean something in of in themselves. Their language is like so powerful that that if they said um, like a like a story that we know like like maybe um, the prodigal son right from from the New Testament. So like right. like the prodigal son has a story and a meaning to it and. And that it has a layer of complexity to it that a simple metaphor does not. And, mm. and one of the best things that I read about this in, in preparing for this chat was the idea that let's let's say that the that this race really totally buys like the, the, their language really is allegorical. So when he says to his first officer, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra, like that those those five words are not just an, a metaphor. They are a course of action. Like right. everybody on the bridge knows I need to do whatever it is that I do. You know, somebody 
apparently sets up a field that we can't transport through. You know, mm -hmm. somebody on that Tamarian ship does something to the atmosphere, we're told, and they can't beam Picard up back to the Enterprise, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody did that without having to be told to do that because mm -hmm. there's no words for, like, you know, block the transporter. Um, there's no allegory for that. But but whoever runs that part of the ship, perhaps, they understand my part of this is to limit the, the – make sure the two guys can't get off the planet until this is done. Yeah. Um, it, it gets a little heady, but I really like the idea that that for these folks, it's real. And and certainly for Dathan, this allegory is so real, he's willing to die for it. Oh, like, yeah. Like the part of the, you know, the story, he takes the story so literally that he will sacrifice himself to relive this story. And yeah. and I guess that's the most interesting part of it to me is that it's not metaphor, it's it's allegory that has a that has a deeper meaning to these to these people. That's interesting. Something I was thinking was um, Dathan is very selfless in this yeah. story, and perhaps his selflessness is ingrained from a societal uh, viewpoint. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sapir Warp uh, hypothesis. No, uh, but, not, not not Lieutenant Warp. This is a yeah. different Warp. <laughs> But it's a theory that states that the structure of a language influences the behavior and the, and the mm -hmm. brain development of the speakers. And the children of Tama don't appear to refer to themselves much. So there might be a sort of cultural selflessness like ingrained in them. Interesting. Um, a desire to forward the common good or, or the goals of their society or like you mentioned, um, you know, what they're doing at the time. Uh, we think of Dathan as being noble and self-sacrificing, but he may have considered putting his life in danger to further this contact as just his job or what was expected of him as an ambassador. Right. And, but and anyway. certainly when, when he and, and his first officer are having that conversation, that brief conversation on the ship, and he's before he beams down with Picard and he's telling him, like, here's my plan. And the first officer is is, is debating him. I mean, he's doing what a first officer should. Like, you're crazy. Right. You could get hurt. Um, you know, but but in 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 saying that, they, they, they all accept it. Like he, he tell they don't just accept it. I think because of the ca because he's the captain. But maybe like you're saying, they accept it because this is a part of of who they are and how they view their 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 lives. They are they are characters and stories, and right. and this is this is his story to then be a part of. Yeah. Um, that that's really interesting. And it, um, another another way that this plays out backwards is when Picard and Dathan are on the planet. And Dathan's trying to tell Picard what the strategy is for defeating this energy monster, whatever it is. And he says, like, uh, Uzani, his army with fist open. And Picard's trying desperately to understand. And he's like, a strategy? Is that what this is? Uh, and then Picard understands that they're going to fight it together. And he stands apart. They fight. You know, he waits for one of them to attack so the other one can stab it in the back. And really... Sure. This this is playing out exactly – if you argue that the allegory is like five words that mean everybody has a job to do, Picard's just figured that out. Like yeah. with another five words, Dathan has said, we're going to separate, and when it turns around to attack me, you're going to attack it, right? But he doesn't have to say all that. Picard just gets it. Right, and, right. You know, P Picard might have gotten it faster if he knew the myth, if he knew the story literally – uh, so that he could tell, you know, the, the the actual events of the story. But but I like this this moment because basically Dathan has stated a situation, and then then on his ship everybody would just know what to do. But Picard, because he doesn't speak that language, has to intuit. Uh, but but it, it's all implicit in the story, and Picard figures that out. Sure. 
I also like the fact that there's this great reversal where Picard is, uh, he thinks he's being so noble by refusing the knife, you know, yeah, I'm right. not going to fight. And from Dathan's perspective, he's just this huge jerk that refuses to cooperate. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to end up as electric triceratops chow, you know, if you don't take this knife yeah, and help dude, me fight. help me out here. You know, <laughs> yeah. What a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. And I think that there, I think you're onto something. I think there's probably a lot of intuition in uh, Tamarian society uh, where people just kind of, do their job like they don't um I, I don't know how you like if you have to fix something right you just have to get to it because maybe they're they are limited in being able to uh, communicate specifically um and small talk must be completely absent right. in their society <laughs> unless it's your it's like temba when it rained cats and dogs or something right like that. right or you know sue when she asked out bob you know and, you know like where yeah. <laughs> when when you know somebody like had an epic fail on the ship and then it becomes legend you know i mean and then it's the, <laughs> that, yeah <laughs> you know then it's like the shorthand that that you and and close friends it, it's the in jokes you know maybe maybe that this is a whole race of people who just speak in in jokes Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and it would go down to um, specific like communities, like there'd be dialects. So you know about Sue and Bob, but somebody <laughs> yeah, else doesn't. They, yeah. It's particular experiences that are unique to them, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're like the the ants in the Lord of the Rings. They only say oh. things um, that are worth taking a while to say. <laughs> That's it. That's good. That's good. You'd have to wonder how their children learn the language, though. Yeah, the children this is another, don't this have is the cultural thing. context. I mean, yeah, if, if understanding and being able to communicate means knowing the stories, who told you the stories to begin with? And how do you know what the stories mean if they just use a five word phrase to imply the meaning. And, right. um, you know, we do get that. One of my favorite scenes in the whole thing, it, it, when, um, when Dathan's asking Picard to tell him a story, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but so we, we get the ideas like, you know, essentially tell me a story. Come on, come on, tell me a story. And, mm. and so maybe, you know, maybe in, in, in their day-to-day life, they're using shorthand for what the stories are. But maybe what they do a lot of the time when they're sitting around is they're not in the holodeck, you know, you know, playing at Dixon Hill. They're like telling each other stories. They're like, oh, sure. they're like repeating at length, like Homeric ballads. You know, I mean, sure. um, you know, where where like the Epic of Gilgamesh would be an appropriate kind of story to tell. Like, here's a story from way, way back, and let me let's tell it again because we all enjoy this story and because it also means something to our lives. So sure. maybe that's how, I mean, maybe, um, maybe as they just begin to tell the stories, I, I, I don't know. I, the, again, like when you drill down too deep with this, uh, well, yeah. it, it falls apart. And, and that is the biggest. And like you said, one of the reasons that this is maybe not an episode to show somebody who's not, who hasn't bought into track. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are similar, well, not totally similar, but there are uh, analogous uh, comparisons to like the differences in languages uh, here on earth. Um, sure. I know in Chinese, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of characters and you need to know like 10,000 or something like that to have, you know, a basic understanding. But there's people even in China who there are characters that they don't know because they just haven't come across them. Yeah. So my like family and I saw a word I, that you didn't know. Yeah, exactly. My family and I traveled to Japan about six years ago. Oh, great. And it was an amazing trip. And we, we we were in we were in a city that wasn't Tokyo. I, maybe it was Kyoto. I, we we traveled a lot of different places. So I'm only saying it because I can't remember which town it was. But we okay. basically had our luggage with us, and we wanted to put it in a locker right at the train station while we walked around this town for a day. I think it was on the island of Shikoku, and we it was all when you're in Tokyo. There's a lot of English, but when you get outside of Tokyo, there's not very much English. And so the only mm. directions for this locker were in Japanese, but there was a little bit of English. And basically what we could understand was 
like we had this question, like if if we leave this here for too long, is is our are we going to lose our luggage and are they going to take it away? Like that would be, right. and <laughs> yeah. So we stop a Japanese person, and we ask her, like, do you speak English? She says yes, and we're like, great. Can you help us read this sign to tell us if our bag is going to get taken away in five hours? And she reads it and she's like, I don't know these characters. And it was like, <laughs> this is a woman like wearing a business suit, like she's professional. And like <laughs> there were characters on that sign that she just didn't understand what they were trying to say. Right. And, and like you said, with Chinese, you know, and, and, and Japanese uses kanji um, with Chinese, there's intonation, you know, yes. and we don't use intonation in our spoken language. And, and I mean, we do a little bit to indicate a question or an you know, exclamation, but not sure, the extent sure. of some Asian languages. So, yeah, yeah there, the whole idea of, of communication is a, uh, is a really deep one, and it, it's a fun one to explore. And like you say, has a lot of resonance to even here on Earth. Yeah, it makes me wonder why there are no xenolinguists like on the ship. Oh, why yeah. are Troy and Data digging into this? Right. <laughs> one of, to, for a show that was pretty much throwaway, one of the few things that that Enterprise did have was they had a xenolinguist. Right. I mean. Right. Uh, and and that's like it seems like you'd need that more than you would need a counselor. But I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, they they come to rely on the uh, on the universal translator a right. lot, and I think that Manoski um, does a really good job of sort of taking those elements that we that we expect and come to rely on, and yep. then finding a way to subvert that. Yeah, absolutely. In a way that I think any nerdy uh, linguist could probably get behind. Uh, yeah. I think it, it would still be tough. I mean, you would need. How would you even like? go to a movie like you can't ask for a ticket to the 830 showing yeah Uh, which which brings me to another point what do you think their entertainment is like do they even have it or is it just as you mentioned before uh sort of maybe possible retellings yeah my guess of old stories that's my guess is storytelling i mean like Uh this is a this is a culture i mean the the way that the way that at least dathan reacts to picard around the campfire like you know like like tell me a story like it doesn't even it almost doesn't matter that he can't understand the story yeah, uh, you know, the, or the actual words or the, or the context. He just sure. likes being told a story, and um, that to me is is maybe um, maybe the key here. I, I've often thought about writing uh, some some sort of a, a science fiction story where where humans go out into the stars and meet other races, and the thing that separates us from everybody else is the fact that we tell stories, and mm. um, like we have. There, there are so many books published every year that no one person could read them all. There's, we're now being told that there's more television, there's more hours of television being created every year than you could possibly watch in one calendar year. Like, sure. you know, you, you, you could not watch every episode of television in 365 days of, of, uh, of television watching. And so, right. like, our humanity seems to be consumed, no matter where you're from or what you believe in. You you love stories like that. That seems to be the common element to humanity. And I've always thought that it'd be really interesting to talk about a universe where not everybody else cares, like nobody else makes up stories or they, they, they maybe they're just very literal or they're they just don't see that as entertainment. Uh, sure. But I like I like the idea that maybe the children of, of Tama are are just they, their whole lives are stories. I, I think that's got to be what they do for entertainment. Sure. So in your story, the astronauts are going to bring their wire DVDs. With exactly, them. that's right. Yeah. Because they're like, you got to see the wire. This is the best thing ever. You just got to watch this. You'll understand. This is the pinnacle of human achievement, right here. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> just wait to see great... Omar. 
Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> Omar coming, spaceman. Uh, there's a great scene in this episode. Uh, I'm sure it's intentional where Jordy and Leffler are trying to modify the transporter. And you mentioned it before. There's just a glut of techno babble oh, yeah. between the two. And if you step back and have a remove for a second, oh, you yeah. think about how strange or alien our language can sound to somebody who's uninitiated, especially to, to people uh, who aren't um, initiated in the tropes of sci-fi, right. uh, which can be a language in, of themselves. No, it's a great point. It's almost as, as incomprehensible as what Dathan's saying. Uh, yeah. it, you know, except that we have been listening to stories for you and I and all Trek fans have been listening to stories since we were a kid that include this techno babble in it. So right. you and I know what what they're what they're talking about doing, whether they're it, it's it's fantasy science. But we understand what they're trying to do with the fantasy science where a, a, a novice or someone who's totally un, unfamiliar with Trek would have zero comprehension of what they're talking about. Right. Uh, that's just a just a blank space for exactly. them in that episode. Uh, I want to know what Dathan is doing with his his pins. Right. At, at some point, he takes the things off. Yeah. And he's kind of doing like a roll, roll in the bones kind of thing. And I want to know if that has like a metaphorical significance or, or what what he's consulting there. I I you know, when I rewatched this episode, you know, before we talked about it, I saw that and and I love that. I made a note about that and. I cannot tell you, I don't even have a guess about what he's doing. And part of the reason I love that moment so much is because we don't know what he's doing. And I think, sure. I think that I, I had a note here that I feel like for a, for a one episode alien race, this is one of the most well-developed one episode alien races that we see. We see a lot of those, you know, the alien of the week, but the fact that there is mystery still to this guy uh, is fascinating, and I and I feel like that whole scene is not. I feel like it's just to compound the mystery. We see him doing so. You know, he's he's like shaking them in his hand. He's casting them almost like they're they're runes or or bones or something. Like he's sure. is he doing a prophecy? Is he, you know, it, are these? Uh, I'm just this is off the cuff. Do sure. each of these represent some? Is it like tattoos? Is it like stuff that he got at different times in his life that represent? parts of his life and he casts them so that he says, Oh, today I'll remember this story. You know, like, okay, you sure. know, I'm, I'm just making this up. I don't know. And, no, and it's good. <laughs> and, and the, you know, but I think that's the, I think that's what's so brilliant about that moment is you could cut that scene out of the show and it wouldn't make any difference to the show. Right. I mean, yeah. it does nothing to further the plot, but I love it because it just adds to the mystery. Just like when Picard walks over and opens up that journal and it's just gobbledygook. I mean, it's it's really cool looking. It's got all the, it looks like diagram sentences or something. But right. But the fact that it's incomprehensible is, I think, is just Benoski and you know whoever worked on the episode with him just trying to say these guys are inscrutable. Like everything about there, you think you can figure this out, but you can't. And I really sure. like that. I think that's kind of the message of the episode. Yeah, it's good to not everything have everything spelled right. out all the time right. too. Yeah, and and uh, I I just I I like that as like we're gonna we're gonna finally find a way into this this society. We're gonna find a way to communicate with them. But seriously, when Picard even has the the talk at the end with the fir- with the first officer on board the Tamarian ship, he like uses like every single thing he knows. <laughs> you know, like yeah, right. <laughs> that, they if have, this guy asked me a question, we're screwed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't have talked about the wire and how great it was because there's no way <laughs> to talk about that. <laughs> McNulty. There's no further yeah. conversation that's happening at this point, but at least he ha- he can he can say enough to be like, dude, the guy's dead, and it's not on me. Sorry. Um, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, no. So I, I, I like that. I like the mystery. I uh, there's a there's a way that some people in our current society communicate uh, specific emotions and situations. It's mostly on the internet. Uh, the Tamarian language kind of reminds me of memes. Oh, sure. Like an... uh, like using a Hotline Bling or Willy Wonka to communicate totally. something very specific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess my question is: uh, Are the Tamarians space four chan? That's what that I'm could thinking. be. They could be. Maybe, maybe they're just the, the the society that only communicates in memes. And right. and if you're not if you're not up on on who Pepe is, you're just not going to understand. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We get to know them better, and it turns out that they're just really just terrible alt right like people. <laughs> they're all the trolls on the intergalactic uh, <laughs> right. the message boards. They just they just pick up on stories, and they they only talk in in, that, in memes or or maybe like emojis. I mean, you know, you know where sure yeah yeah right. yeah. This is this is uh, <laughs> it's like a teenager just talking to you. It's not. It's not an episode that's rife with uh, comedic moments. Um, no. I think the elegiac quality probably couldn't handle too many pokes yeah. at it. But I do like the initial meeting with the children of Tama right. and Worf, as usual, is very being very prudent. He's yeah. like, these guys might be a problem, and they're like, ah, we're not going to get in a fight with these guys, Worf. Don't worry. And then smash yeah. cut to what the hell are these bozos talking about? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we have the obligatory Worf line about you know. We should attack, or we should, you know, that we should make put up a defensive stance. I mean, Worf is there in almost every episode to, to, um, to argue for a, a, a more militaristic stance. But at least yeah. this time, what I, I really like too, and this is one of the great things about Picard as a character, he he says you're you're right to be cautious. But you know, Troy immediately throws in after that. But they haven't shown any indication that they want to fight us, and and Picard's like, yeah, in, until they do something bad. We're we're gonna be we're gonna hold off, but then they do something bad. I mean, they kidnap right. Picard. You know, the, yeah. the, he is flashing daggers, and they kidnaps Picard. And and now it, I think it, it, at last, Worf has a voice. You know, like like right, right, dudes. I warned you. You know, like, yeah. There's so many. I told you so yeah, moments exactly, for Worf. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it turns out, of course, you know, it's not he's not going down there to fight him, but but still, Worf has a legitimate beef at this point. He he his role is to say. I see danger when I, when he sees danger to say something and he does uh, yeah. stranger danger. So um, <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 we, we get that moment of, of, of tension there. And then we of course get Riker on uh, in command for the, for the rest of the episode um, trying to figure out how to deal with these guys and get their people back. And um, sure. Yeah. Uh, I want to throw in here too, that I, I really I very much like that unusual for Star Trek, where it's Star Trek is often an Edison odd, you know, where where the the scientists save the day, and yeah. um, this is one where the scientists actually screw things up. Uh, <laughs> the, it's true that they do get Picard back at the end when they can finally figure out how to get him through the the scrambler, but, right? But the whole time Geordi and Data are work well, Geordi, I guess, is the one working on it, trying to get Geordi and Worf trying to get Picard back to the ship. And they actually mess things up by pulling him away while he and Dathan are supposed to be fighting the energy monster. And sure. in, a, in a heartbreaking scene, like I like I that to me is a, is a very emotional part of this episode. And um, when when they're both fighting together and Picard's getting pulled away and he's screaming like, no, no, not now, like. He's yeah. like, oh, no, I finally get what this is about, and it's not about you pulling me out of this. Like, this guy's going to get hurt. And um, it's this is an episode of Trek where science does not save the day. It's the personal, co- the personal contact, the personal, uh, you know, the, the the relationship 
that Picard makes with Dathan that saves the day. And that's that's a kind of an unusual thing for Trek. I think too often we had sort of the deus ex machina of, of science bailing us out. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so so I, I like this episode for that, too. Props for that. Yeah, it would be interesting to to know the actual story of Darmok and Jalad, yeah. to know, because the Enterprise does interfere with whatever Dathan is trying to do. So it turns into something, it becomes Picard and, and Dathan at... Uh, El Eladrell, isn't it? Yes. Eladrell, El yes. Uh, but up to that point, like, that's not how, it's probably not how Dathan saw it going, no. and they managed to, to pull it out. Right, you get the idea, I mean, in, I think in the story, at least, don't we find out that they sail off together? So they both end up on an island... You know, this, is, ocean, this is Darmok yes. and Jalad. They, 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 yeah, Darmok and Jalad on the ocean means that they have fought the monster at Tanagra or whatever it was. They've met the, they've met the challenge. Then they sail off the together beast, yes. as friends. And yes. I, I think that's totally how Dathan sees this playing out. Uh, yeah, and instead it ends up they end up like Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Right, exactly. Uh, and yeah. which brings us to the story of Gilgamesh. This was my first encounter with that story. Um, I mean, mm. I'd heard of it. But I'd never studied it in any class. I'd never read it on my own or any version of it before this episode. And I was so enchanted by the story that the, – by the way that Picard tells the story that I immediately went out and bought a book uh, that, that had – not the original epic of Gilgamesh. I've never read like the ancient uh, some, the Sumerian version, you know, like you know, translation. But I, but I read an account of this, and um, I really like – you know, Trek is a show that – from the original series has pulled in literary illusions at every opportunity. But, yes. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, when they shouldn't, but, but almost <laughs> always Western. So like I started to, I just sat down and I started brainstorming all the things I could think of that Trek had mentioned or brought up. I thought of uh, Shakespeare, of course, is over and over again. Uh, Bowie yeah. Dick, Peter Pan, Cyrano de Bergerac, Pinocchio. Um, all these are Western canon stories and sure. and for a for this episode to go to gilgamesh was great i mean there's an obvious reason gilgamesh and enkidu are two warriors who at first are at odds and then come together and become best friends and then enkidu does die in the Gil, in the gilgamesh epic then sure. you know gilgamesh goes off to basically the underworld trying to find a way to bring him back and uh, or to find eternal life because he's so broken up over his the friend the death of his friend but mm -hmm. i I love that we're pulling in a, a non-Western story here. Like, like when, when he's like, tell me a story, tell me a story. Like Picard has a lot of stories he could go to. A few Shakespeare. Sure. <laughs> you know, he's got a few Shakespearean stories, I'm sure, in his noggin. And, sure. and he goes to Gilgamesh. And I, th I just – I always love that because it, Gilgamesh is almost as alien to Western society as some of the stories that, that the Dathan is telling. I mean – Sure. It's just not something that I ever had occasion to study or read in school, whereas all these other things I was, uh, you know, either were put in my hands or, or taught to me. And I think it's a great pull by Minoski as yeah. well, just because, like you said, I mean, there's a lot of things he could have picked, but he decided specifically, sure, it, you know, fits the, the action of the episode, too, yeah. um, the way he wrote it. But it just reaches back as being one of the earliest right. recorded stories, you know, that we have. So Picard is saying, well, let's start at the start at the yeah, top. Yeah, I mean, basically. thankfully, he doesn't start with Beowulf. But, um, <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but yeah, you, you get the idea that these stories that Dathan is telling are ancient, you know, like... Darmok and Jalad are probably not two dudes that were in his lifetime or his parents' lifetime. And we get the idea that these are characters from mythology, from legend. 
And sure. And, and when yeah. Data and Troy are, are searching for uh, the context um, on the Wikipedia thing, like yeah, I said, exactly. they memory they find that the yeah yeah the uh, one of the things is like from a certain planet um, that they know that is right. in their records. Yeah. But but yet we don't know if the Tamarians are from there. The Universal Translator works so clearly like they are using phonemes that must exist in some other right. race. So yeah, they could they could have been going through the stars for who knows how exactly. long uh, before we ran into them. Yeah, maybe they're a, maybe they're a spacefaring society that's nomadic. Maybe they don't have a planet. You know, I mean, maybe these are stories that they've pulled from many different planets and different cultures. I mean, maybe what the Tamarians do is they go around learning everybody's stories. Maybe they are like. The you know the 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 Gutenberg project for for space you know they <laughs> they, they 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 want they want everybody you did tell me every story you've got you know sure. um, because the more stories they have the more allegory they have to apply to real situations all right I mean you, yeah. if you got ten stories you can't really run a starship but if you've got millions of stories and you've got the brain that can bring those back up I mean that could be a really possibly effective way of of communicating. Sure. Uh, best case scenario, Gutenberg project. Worst case, they're those kids that uh, sit in the back of the class and just quote uh, money. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. They're just like, you know, where are the knights who say knee? And you're like, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. Um, but speaking of that, that data and Troy scene, uh, it's an interesting episode because we don't often get data and Troy working together on anything. I mean, um, sure. you know, uh, Data is often working with with Jordy in engineering. It's why they become such good friends. Uh, you know, if, if Troy is going to be helping anybody, it's usually Picard or Riker on the bridge. And it, and so in this case, I I think it's a good episode for Troy. Um, we we get to see her in her communication. We get to see her communication skills and and her yeah. counselor abilities. Not just you know I sense danger. I sense lying. You know, um, she's using her training, not her her inborn Betazoid empathy to yeah. to do a job. And I like that. I mean, we see her as a skilled person. And as a matter of fact, when my wife and I, my, my wife's a big Trek fan as well. She was my, you know, faux literary agent for my Trek novel. And sure, um, we rewatched this episode together and she was waiting for a scene that never happened because it happens in a different episode. Uh, she was waiting for the scene where Troy holds a cup up to Picard and says like, you think communicating's easy, but but if I hold this cup up to you and I say Samara, what am I saying? And he's like, um, cup, tea. And she's like, maybe I mean liquid or clear or brown or hot. You know, like yeah, I can, or this is dirty. Yeah, yeah I could be meaning <laughs> any of these things. And yeah. this this is actually from we I went and looked it up because we expected this conversation in this episode, but it isn't. It's in the instance of command. Um, yeah. where they're talking about communicating with the Sheliak and, yeah. and how difficult that is. And so the, this is, um, you know, it's, I like Troy in that role. I like her as the person who figures out how to talk to people. That's what she does. She, she talks to people. That's her job. I think too often her role as counselor uh, gets sh a short shrift. Um, I think it's neat that that was sort of added to the show, but I always wondered why Data doesn't go to her because you'd think, yep. uh, why would Data need to see a counselor? But if he wants to be more human, oh, yeah. he she could he can talk to her and she can sort of monitor his responses to things, and you know she can tell him she can kind of give him a sense of how human he's getting. Yeah. Yeah, there's nobody uh, on the ship who's more emotional, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm not, I'm not saying oh, that's no, a criticism. Sure, sure. She embraces emotion as part of her job. 
Like she is yeah. in tune with the emotions of the ship and the people on the ship. That's her job to make sure that everybody yeah. is happy and functioning well. And it seems like she would be a great resource for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, as we wrap up here, um, did you have anything that you want to add about this episode? Yeah. Well, so um, one thing, this is, this is kind of a weird thing, but I feel like this is maybe a referendum on Kirk versus Picard. Now this is, um, so bear with me on this real quick. Um, okay. I, 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 every time I watch this episode, I think of arena from the original show. The original sure, sure. So just as you know, a quick recap, uh, for that one in arena, um, the, the Federation is gone to an outpost. The Gorn have attacked it. The Gorn, they don't speak with, they don't communicate with Spock tells us, they're, they're the source of space legends. You know, everything is space something sure. or other in the old show. Um, yeah. But we be my space lawyer. Um, space madness, yeah. yeah. So that's right. Uh, this They are like the children of Tama, a society that there has been a little contact with. They know they exist, but they can't communicate with them. You know, the, the Gorn destroy a planet where there's a Federation outpost. And then in chasing them, uh, they run into a planet where the Metrons catch both ships and banish both Kirk and the Gorn captain to uh, a va- to a, a valley outside of Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> to to fight. Um, and uh, we th- at first they can't communicate. At least they don't know that they can. But it turns out that the little gizmos they've been carrying around to record what happens allow them to communicate with each other. And even then. Even when Kirk finds out that the Gorn captain has been listening in and that they can communicate, he doesn't say, like, dude, let's call this off. Like, let's let's sit down and talk, you know. Instead, right. Kirk is just Kirk, fist first, uh, you know, shoot first to ask questions later. And, yeah, he would have made short work of Paul Winfield, I think. Yeah, I think well, he would have totally taken out Paul. Like, as soon as they're down <laughs> yeah. there and Winfield holds up those daggers, Kirk would have done a running lunge and Drop knocked kick. him to the ground, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I will note, so there, there are other there are echoes in both uh, of, of, the, of, of Arena in this one. I do not believe, I'm not advocating this, I'm not saying this, I do not believe that Minoski wrote this as a, as a commentary on Arena. Uh, I, yeah. I don't think that it is... You know, so often in the first couple of seasons when Roddenberry was around, we had episodes that really harked back to the original series. I don't I don't feel like we're doing that at this point. We're into season five, I guess, at this point. We're not doing that. Um, sure. But I mean, Picard gets his shirt torn. That's a very Kirk thing. Uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're 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 filming on location in a canyon outside of Los Angeles, not the same place. That would have been too too spot on. Um, but they. It feels like the difference between how Kirk would react to this situation and how Picard would react to this situation. And at yeah. the end of the of arena, when Kirk has killed the Gorn, um, or I guess not, he, he he doesn't kill him. He he beats him down, and then he has this weird sort of um, un. I, I won't kill for yeah, you. Yeah, I won't yeah, kill for yeah. you. Like why not? What you you were ready to hunt these guys down and kill them <laughs> yeah. before? You made a cannon yeah. out of a tree. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like there, there's this unprecedented sort of out of nowhere. Like I won't do your bidding, but at the end, they find out that the Gorn maybe like thought that was their planet and really did attack without understanding. And Bone says maybe the Gorn were right, and Spock says that's for the diplomats. And my <laughs> argument is. 
they are diplomats. Nobody's been able to talk to these guys. Data is t- saying like the, the last guy to run into him said they are incomprehensible, you know, or something like that. Right. And and Riker's like, how are we supposed to talk to these guys? And Picard says, and I've written it down. In my experience, communication is a matter of patience and imagination. I would like to believe that these are qualities which we have in sufficient measure. Mm-hmm. And like at the end of the arena episode, they're talking about maybe in thousands of maybe in a few thousand years we'll be better at this. And Picard saying, We're good at this right now. Sure. We're we're not thousands of years away from this. This is this is who we are. And to my mind, if you're it's a it's a matter of do you shoot first or do you try to communicate first? And yeah. and to me this episode is so quintessentially Star Trek, but also quintessentially Picard. Like this is a Picard episode, and I just don't think that you can plop Kirk down in this episode and it plays out anywhere near the same way. No, and Kirk has to, in Arena, like, he won't kill him, but he has to win. Like, yep. you know, he's... Right. Uh, you, you'll live under, under me because I beat right. you and I'm right. the king we of the hell. Right, can have peace, but that's with me as the boss. Right, I'm setting the yeah, terms, exactly. yeah. And that's a great point about Picard, and they give him that line, and it's set up a little, I think, hubristically, because it's you know sort of at the beginning of the episode, and then, of course, yes. they smash cut to, yes. like, can't understand these guys. But he he talks the he walks the walk uh, yeah. the, of the talk that he talks, and he can have a sentiment like that, and yet he's willing to deliver on it and, you know, not fight, let the guy kill him if that's what he wants yeah. when he's on the planet. So, so some fans who have tried to back you know, retcon some some or or not retcon but at least to, to head canon in a way that this language would re- really work is to say that they speak also telepathically in a way that is not standard to betazoids so sure this is this is a fun sort of pet fan theory i'm not sure i, I totally buy it but um the idea is that that the five word phrases or whatever that they spit out are shorthand for what they're saying and that they are somehow able to mentally project, uh, you know, maybe like a head cinema kind of thing, like a, a, <laughs> okay. you know, a, a kino or something where they where they're showing images from it. And, and they're, that's more understandable um, in the old clan of the cave bear book by Jean all this was before. So at the time when she wrote those, the, sci- the scientific understanding of Neanderthals was that they did not have the mechanical stuff in their bodies to make words that they were okay. not capable of language in the way that homo sapiens were and that sure. um homo sapiens sapiens and that um in her book she kind of had this idea that they also used a sign language in addition to it and that when the homo sapiens sapiens met them they only heard the grunting because homo sapiens didn't use a sign language and verbal communication and so it, to translate to Darmok, what I mean is like if Darmok is both thinking what he means at Picard and saying what he means, he might be just saying the shorthand for what he means, but the fuller the fuller communication is lost in translation. And sure. so that's kind of a that's kind of a fan headcanon that I've always that, 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 that I think is a fun way of thinking about it. And it helps get over some of those humps like what we were talking about earlier with like, how do we know what speed to go and what direction to go? Sure. That kind of puts me in the mind of another TNG episode. I think uh, it's called Dark Page, uh, where there's a race called the Cairn who are um, telepathic and they're so telepathic that they've lost the ability to communicate verbally. Right. They just simply all, you know, uh, project images uh, into each other's minds. And so they, they've even lost basically like written like language. Right. 
Um, and so Luxwana Troy, of course, is trying to help them get into the Federation now. Yeah. So I think uh, Kirsten Dunst is in that Oh, episode. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, just some fun yeah. headcanon stuff. Well, uh, let's talk my space yeah. dad can beat up your space dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Yeah, Picard's my guy. Um, uh, mm. I... Again, TNG was so big for me when I was in college and 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 as an adult. Um, and I, I thought I, I, I like to think of it this way: like, who would I rather serve under? And I think that I would definitely yeah. want to be. I think Picard I would want to have as my captain because I I feel like he would he would ask questions first and make and make good logical decisions. Um, but 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 human decisions. I mean, so he he's kind of like Spock and Kirk rolled into one. I guess. Weirdly though, uh, DS Nine is my favorite of the series. Um, and, okay. Uh, so uh, I I do like I do love me some Cisco. I think he's great. Um, but uh, and, and I think that I, I like that show for various reasons better even than TNG. I still love TNG. Um, but Picard's my guy. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Cisco's a great character, yeah. but he's so mercurial. Yes. I'd be afraid to yeah. serve under him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the end of the show, uh, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. Ah. What department on the ship would you work in? Um, I think I want. I would love to work ops. Um, I, I want to be on the bridge in, in the room where it happens to borrow a Hamiltonism. Uh, I, I, uh, and I want to be in the command chain, I guess, you know, I guess in ops, uh, you know, they've got data in gold. So I guess he's in, in science, uh, in TNG. Um, but I would, but I, you know, we see him getting, you know, some commission later on. I guess you don't just have to wear the, the red in TNG to get, to, we, we see Crusher as a captain of a, of a medical ship later on. Um, so I, I definitely would want to be on like a career track to where I'm, uh, can get in that captain's chair, but, but I like ops because you get to be in everybody's business. Like I, you know, data has got to know everything that's going on on that ship. And, uh, I, I, I want to be that guy. Like, uh, IT. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you're both <laughs> IT and you're like, um, you, you're, you're also like the, the planner for everything. I mean, if, if if needs to, if something needs to get done or if you need to monitor something on that ship, he's your guy. I mean, he's like the panopticon sitting there at that station. Sure, and it's always it's ops has always been for me that thing where it I can't exactly you can't exactly explain to yeah. me what you do, yeah. but I definitely need you. If like you got sick or got eaten by a triceratops or right. something like that, we would. Be I think screwed. what they finally realized was we don't need a navigator. You know, like. <laughs> Right, right. Like maybe the helmsman could also, you know, like punch in a course at the same time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, they wrap Chekhov and Sulu into one into one character that for for a while was Will Wheaton, and then and then a rotating cast of characters. But um, but no, I, I I think you're right. I I think that ops is well, it, it's a really a replacement for the science station. I mean, we don't have a science officer on the bridge of of the Enterprise D the way that we did the A. You know, and yeah. um, uh. You know, he is – if you need to know, like, like what kind of planet it is, you know, is it an M-class planet? Data can tell you. It, can he – you know, he can tell you what kind of ship just pulled up in front of you. I mean, some of this, again, like you said, overlaps with what Worf is doing back back there. You know, Worf is some for some reason in charge of hailing frequencies and uh, in addition to shields and, and, and weapons. Um, but I, I still like that kind of know-it-all position on the, on the bridge. Yeah. I always thought that they should probably split up. The the person that fires the torpedoes is also the person that has to jump over the railing to save the captain when somebody beats yes. on the bridge. Yes. They need to split those up. Yeah, yeah. I always liked to think that in TNG, by TNG, that you could call up any station on your computer that you needed to um, instead of, you know, like where uh, in, in the old show, as soon as one person, get, you know, had exploding sparks in their face and fell to the ground – 
you'd have somebody run in and, and take their place or, or try to sit in their seat. I kind of like the idea that you right. could just kind of on TNG push a button and up comes the uh, you know the, the the phaser array on your station and you can shoot too. So uh, yeah, that's how they got Jordy on the bridge. Exactly. Just goes up to the bridge. Yeah. And, and, and Scotty, yeah. to be honest, Scotty, you know, in in the original series, by the second season, they've got him at this wide console, you know, opposite Uhura, and you know he's his chief engineer, but he doesn't he's not sitting in he's not sitting in in engineering half the time. He's up there on the bridge pushing buttons. So. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll, I would love to be opposite. Oh, and I'd love to be Bolian. Um, oh, there you yeah, go. <laughs> Bolian is my one of my favorite sort of minor races, you know, tertiary races from uh, from from this from the show. Of course, named after Cliff Bowl, the director. Um, yeah. That's where they get, came up with the name for the Bolians. And um, I always love their blue. They're, these are the blue guys with the bifurcated faces. Um, right. You know, Mott the barber was Bolian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, went, went for for years, like I said, I, I role played uh, on a sim, and I was a um, I was a Bolian engineer. Um, but I, I think I'm going to give up my engineering uh, gig because in real life, I I I I'm a very bad engineer. Uh, you you wouldn't <laughs> want me fixing your ship, and you wouldn't want me in in sick bay. So I'll take ops. I'm hoping for uh, with the uh, new series being set in the past. I'm hoping to for some Andorians or Tolarians I, or something like, like that. But we need more Andorians on the show. I know, and of course, the best Andorian they gave us was an Enterprise, and and maybe one of few reasons yeah. to watch that was the the the, the command performance. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs. That's the guy I was trying to think of. Oh, Jeffrey right. Combs. So he's okay. he's Shran in, in Enterprise. He's Wayun in Deep yeah, Space yeah. Nine. He's Brunt oh, in okay, Deep Space okay, Nine. I mean, okay. he's he's amazing. He's like great character actor. But you put a sure. prosthesis on him, and he's amazing. And um, uh, he's also the voice of um, uh, the question in the Justice League cartoon, which is yes, great. Yes. Uh, yes. So anyway, he he's fantastic, <laughs> and and we need more Andorians. Uh, you know, I did like Enterprise for bringing in those original. Those original races, so maybe Discovery will give us that again too. Um, you know, and and Spock had been such a major character as a Vulcan that the TNG and DS9 really held off on Vulcans, um, and we really didn't get a lot of strong Vulcan character until you know in, until Voyager with Tuvok and then Enterprise. Um, but yeah. I would I would love to see them embrace all those old races and bring them back. Well, Anson Gratz, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter. And the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? They can find me at alangratz.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but alangratz.com is where you can find out more about me and my books. Uh, I have a new book coming out this fall, uh, and it's called Refugee. And it's the story of three different refugee families in three different eras. Uh, uh, Jewish refugees trying to get to safety in Cuba. Uh, at, it, right before World War II, Cuban refugees trying to get to safety in America in the 90s, and Syrian refugees trying to get to safety in Germany in the present day. And I weave all three of the stories together. So that's my right. new book that comes out this October. Well, check that out. Uh, thanks again for joining. Oh, me. my pleasure. Yeah. And we are signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.